Open your Bibles to the book of John. John chapter 16. Does anyone need a Bible this morning? John chapter 16. Does anyone need a Bible? John chapter 16. And we are studying these last words of the Lord Jesus Christ. We just read this morning our text, John 16, verses 23 to 27. Last week, we dealt with verses 23 and 24. Did anyone mark in their Bibles the three reasons that we should pray from John 16? Reason number one, because we will receive what we ask for. Reason number two, what was that second reason? Who is it that actually draws near to you and gives you what you ask for? The Father. And the third reason in verse 24, if you will pray, you will be filled with what? Okay, joy. So those are in John chapter 16, verses 23 and 24. So we tried to inspire you with three reasons to pray. Straight from our Lord. You should become a prayer warrior Because he will give you what you ask for. You should be a prayer warrior because God himself will come down from heaven and meet with you. If you love God, don't you want him to come to you and into your heart? He'll do that. And reason number three, go pray because you cannot find greater joy than when God answers your prayer. Those are the three reasons in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 16. But our Lord is not done. Because he's going to give us two methods. One in verse 25 and one in verse 26. Two ways to pray. Two tools. Two practical methods whereby you can pray. To receive the answers that you desire so greatly. Have you ever wondered to yourself... Am I praying in the right way? Have you ever asked yourself, it seems like I'm asking for things and I'm not receiving. Perhaps you have not received because you're not asking in the right way. Our Lord Jesus gives two ways to ask. This morning, I want to give you those two. One is in verse 25 and the next one is in verse 26. But I would first of all draw your attention to this. Prayer is very important to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's taught about it four times the last night before he dies. He's going to die in 12 hours. Even now, Judas, with his 200 or more soldiers, is walking to meet him. He's going to die. They're going to kill him. He knows he's going to die, and he's already told his disciples, I'm leaving you. But four times, more than any other doctrine, he teaches them, you must pray. Why? Well, we saw last week why. Three reasons why. Why must you pray? Because when you pray, you'll get what you ask for. Why must you pray? Because God himself will meet with you. He'll give you the answers. Why must you pray? What will be full? Your joy. How must you pray? That's this morning's message. Interestingly, after this verse 27, in verses 28 to 33, in the end of the chapter, there's one message that we'll have on those last six verses. And then in chapter 17, We go directly into the Lord Jesus Christ himself praying. So for us as the church, we have Jesus teaching us to pray four times in John 13, 14, 15, and 16. And then he's going to give us an entire prayer to show us an example. So he gives us the teaching in chapters 13 to 16, and then he gives us an example. That is the model teacher. Isn't that what good teachers do? They tell you the right way, and then they show you 
the right way. So we'll actually have another five or six sermons on prayer. Let's see this morning the two methods. Verse 25 has the first one. Verse 25. I have spoken these things to you in Proverbs. Does your Bible say figuratively? Put up your hand if your Bible says figuratively. Yeah, yeah, verse 25. In figures or symbols or parables or proverbs. I've spoken to you in pictures or symbols. But the time is coming when I will not speak to you in pictures anymore. I will speak to you clearly. Wait a minute. There's two different kinds of speaking in verse 25. What are the two? One is figuratively. What's the other way to talk in verse 25? Clearly. You might want to circle those two. One way to talk is in a way that's not clear. And another way to talk is a way that's very Why would you ever intentionally talk in a way that is not clear? Why would you do that? Our Lord Jesus does do that. He's speaking in figures or in symbols or in pictures or in proverbs. What would you think if I came to church this morning and said, well, good morning. Thank you for the singing. Let's begin our sermon today. There was a certain man who was very rich He had many businesses, and he said to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down all of my buildings, and I'm going to build larger buildings. But God in heaven said, you fool, you'll die tonight. Let's close in prayer. Would Would that surprise you? What if I told you this? Good to see you all this morning. Our message is this. Once there was a farmer. He walked out with his bag. He would scatter his seeds out there. The reason he did that is he had so much land. If you don't have much land, you just put one seed in each hole. This man had a lot of land, which is, by the way, why Europe and America differ in their farming. Europeans are so excited about their farming, they say, we turn out more crops per square hectare than in America. America's farmers... They don't know how to do anything because they have this large land and they don't bring as much crops out of the hectare. That's because they have more land in the U.S., but they have a smaller amount of workforce. But in Europe, they have a smaller amount of land and a larger workforce, so they make sure they get every ounce of produce out of their land. Well, here's this farmer. I got distracted. Let me start over here. Here's the preacher coming in, and he says, Good morning. Let me tell you, my sermon today is a farmer, he grabs seed out of his bag, he tosses it on the land, some of it falls in the path. Birds come down and eat that seed. Some of it falls over there in this soil. It springs up quickly, but there's rocks underneath, so when the sun comes, it dies. Over here, it starts, but there's weeds. It wasn't plowed very nicely. The weeds choke it and it dies. But over here... It it grows very nicely and it produces fruit. Some has 30, some has 16, some has 100. Let's close in prayer. What was the point exactly? What exactly are you saying? Uh, I say, good morning, glad you're here today. There was a certain farmer, he had a large field. He planted it and then he went to bed. While he was sleeping, his enemies came and they tossed in seeds from a bunch of weeds. After time, they both grew up and the workers said, there's weeds and there's corn in there together. Should we take up the weeds? Ah, let it go. At the end, when we harvest, we'll separate the two. Let's close in prayer. What are you doing? Why would our Lord Jesus intentionally teach in a way that was not clear? That's the first method in prayer. I don't want you to pray in a way that's unclear. I want you rather to learn the message that Jesus was sending by speaking in Proverbs. What was he saying when he intentionally speaks in an unclear way? He was teaching them 
that you must be in a position of absolute trust in God. That's what he was teaching them. If he revealed everything he knows, it wouldn't be a trinity, it would be a quartet. But there is only a trinity. It is God himself who knows all, and he only reveals a portion so that you must trust him. That's why he speaks in parables. Maybe a mother who deals with her child can say, you've got to tell me everything. Moms, can you imagine if your child said to you, hey mom, I'm going out. And you say, where are you going? Who will you be with? And when will you be back? And your 11 year old says, ah, I'll think about answering and walks out the door. How would you feel, moms? Would you say, that's the way it should be? You would not because there is an authority structure and mom's on top and 11-year-old's on the bottom. You see, the one who controls the information is the one who's on top. And Jesus, by saying, I control the information, I'll give you this much, and I'm not going to give you more than that. And you say, but I want more than that. I know you want more, but let's communicate very clearly who's on top and who's on the bottom. An employee is working for his boss, and the boss says, this is the way I want you to do it. And the employee says, well, you don't understand, actually, this and this. And the employer says, I've heard you, but we're doing it this way. And the employee says, well, but that's not quite the best way. And the employer says, you're just going to have to be quiet and do it my way. One's on top and one's underneath. When our Lord Jesus speaks in parables, he's saying in a way that we cannot forget. I'm on the top and you're underneath and there's going to have to be complete trust in my words. Trust in God does not require full revelation. You don't have to know everything in order to trust in God. Why does he allow pain to come to good people? Why did he allow the slave trade? Why did he allow the economic problems in the 90s and 2000s in Zimbabwe? Why did he allow apartheid? Why did he allow the crime wave in South Africa? We don't have to know the answers to all those questions in order to trust God. Why was there a 16-year-long war in Mozambique fighting people group against people group in Mozambique in the 1990s? Why was there a war with the communists in Angola that young men in South Africa had to die in Angola? He does not have to give all the answers to that question, those questions in order for us to trust him. Why was there genocide in Rwanda when Hutus and Tutsis killed each other and piled their bodies in the streets? He does not have to answer those questions in order for us to trust him. Jesus reveals himself in figures because he would have us to trust. He does not tell us why our lives have happened the way that they have. Have you ever thought about yourself and thought, why did my life have to happen this way? Why couldn't this one thing have been changed? God put me there. Why didn't he put me here? God gave me those parents. Why didn't he give me these? You know, that one thing happened in university and that changed my whole life. Why did God do it that way and not this way? My baby was born with Down syndrome. Why did that have to happen? My husband left me. Why did that have to happen? My wife got sick. Why did that have to happen? My baby died. I lost my job. And Jesus says, I don't reveal everything because it inspires your trust. Are you sometimes distressed when you see how hard, how heavy, how unfair life can be? Aren't you that way? You look at your life and think, I'm a better person than that one, but I'm living in the shack and he's living in the big house. And it's not fair. The disciples had experienced that. Several times that very evening, 
In John chapter 13, verse 22. Look back there. Go back to 13, 22. The disciples looked on one another and doubting, perplexed, confused about whom he was talking. Jesus said, one of you will betray me, but he doesn't tell who will betray them. And so the disciples are confused. They're questioning, why did you just tell us? I'm in control. I have my good purposes for not telling you. 2 Corinthians 4, 8, Paul the Apostle says, we are confused, we are doubtful, we are uncertain all over. Our lives are made difficult because God does not tell us what's going to happen. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8. But friends, the call of God to trust is the same way he has always worked with his people. Think back to the beginning. Almost every single person in the Bible who has had a story explained in the pages of Scripture had to trust. Think of Noah, 120 years building an ark for something called rain. They had never seen rain. And for a hundred years, he and his boys are working to build this ark, this massive structure, a hundred meters long. And while they're building it, you can be sure people were mocking them and laughing at them. And he's preaching, and they say, yeah, we've heard you. You've done this for two years now. You, for 730 days, you've done this. And Noah doesn't realize he's going to have to do that for a hundred years years. He's going to have to do that for 36,000 days. He's going to have to continue to trust God. How would you feel after the 30,000th day? You still haven't seen rain, but God said it will rain. What about Abraham, who's given the promise when he's 75 years old, you're going to have a baby and he has to wait another 25 years before he has the son. You say, I'm 75, it's time. No, it's not. You're going to have to learn to trust. <clears throat> what about Joseph, who has to trust God for two years while he's in prison, or for 20 years while he's in Egypt? What about Moses, who has to trust God for 40 years while he's in the backside of the desert? What about Joshua, who has to trust God for 40 years while he's second in command? What about David, who's in the wilderness for seven to ten years? Years. Imagine that. Being David, you're anointed at 16 years old to be the king. You wait four years with a really bad boss who's throwing spears at you because he's controlled by demons. Four years working for a man like that. You keep doing what's right. There's no blame that can ever be put on you for four years. And at the end of four years, that's when you get your promotion. No, at the end of four years, then the guy tries to kill you for the third time. And you run away and you're stuck in the wilderness and he gets the whole army. He gets the nation's army to chase you for seven to ten years. And you're remembering the whole time, when I was 16, God said I would be the king. And I'm here struggling just to get my food. And then another country's army comes in and steals your wife and kids. And all of your friends turn on you and want to stone you. And in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, it says, David was depressed. Oh, I wonder why. Every single thing's against him. He has every reason not to trust in God. But David and all those men who were in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, they're in the hall of faith because though their revelation was this small and though the time was very long, they trusted God. They took his word and they held on to it. The whole time. We could go through almost every great man or woman in the Bible, like Ruth or Esther. Imagine Esther trusting God when they said, But the king's going to kill me. Over and over, prayer requires more trust than any spiritual discipline. In verse 25, where do we see the trust in verse 25? I don't want you to go home and say, I didn't follow what he was saying. Look in verse 25. Where do we see the idea of trust in verse 25? How many kinds of talking are there in verse 25? How many kinds? Tell me. There's two kinds. The one is figurative and the other is what? Clear, plain, open. The one is not clear, the other is clear. 
Why does God sometimes talk to us in ways that are not clear? He wants us to do what? Okay, does everyone see that right from the Bible? So that you won't say afterward, I didn't really follow where you were coming from. Jesus tells them openly, there's coming a time when I'll be very clear with you, but right now I'm not clear. You have lots of questions. That's the way I want it. I want it to be unclear. Why? Why does God want it to be unclear? So they will be forced to do what? Trust. Trust. Right. I'm not giving you all the answers because if you have all the answers, you'll say, well, now I know exactly how things are going to go. I don't want you to know everything. I want you to know this. I'm the king and I'm telling you this. He wants us to trust. Prayer requires trust more than any other spiritual discipline. Why? Because you're speaking to someone that you cannot what? You're talking to one who is invisible. And you are speaking about the future. No one prays about the past. Oh Lord, I'm praying that you would change what happened yesterday. It's gone. You never pray about the past. You're praying about what's where. And what is in the future is by definition what you cannot see. When you pray, you're saying something happened in the past or something is happening right now and I want it to be different. You're praying for your son to be converted because you think about your son and you think, well, yesterday he lied to me and today he's got a bad attitude. Lord Jesus, please save him so that in the future he will be different, right? My husband did this. My wife did this. My boss did this. I have these problems in the past and even right now. But tomorrow, I don't want this problem. So you're trying to use a sanctified, holy imagination. You've got to imagine the way things could be in the future if God would answer your prayer. That's something you can't see. When you read the Bible, how much trust does that require? You open your Bible, you look at the subject, you look at the verb, you read the words. Going to church. Oh, this is what we do. It's every Sunday morning we go to church. Yes, it requires trust in God, but not so much as prayer. It is prayer that says, speak to someone you can't see about things that are still in the future and largely spiritual. That requires trust. That's why Jesus is inspiring it. We can pray about the weather. We can pray about cars. But most prayers that occupy the Christian's daily prayer life are complex matters of the human soul. We're praying for someone to be converted. We're praying that spiritual powers would, would move uh, or be changed or manipulated by God's power. This is perhaps why we find it easier to read the Bible than we do to pray. How many of you, just if I can ask this by a show of hands, how many of you would say, I commonly find it easier to read my Bible than to pray. I, I would put my hand up. If you put your hand up, put it up. And let's look around the room. Look around the room at the hands that are up. That's most people, okay? I also find it easier to read my Bible than I do to do what? To pray. It's a difficult discipline. And one of the reasons is our Lord Jesus speaks to us in figures so that when we pray, we are going to have to cast ourselves all of our souls and all of our heart on his words. That's an act of the mind and the will that is more difficult than reading the Bible. At the moment of prayer, much of this is invisible. It's going to require, as I mentioned, a holy imagination. So friends, let me ask you, you had thought that you had trusted God. But does it show up in your prayer Many of us will move away from prayer because it requires so much difficult trust. What is, what is trust? But it is a series of choices of the will. It is a constant casting of the will back on the thing you trust. It's a constantly resetting of the mind. It's like using your phone. Does your phone ever make mistakes and they have to turn it off and turn it back on? Does your phone ever do that? That's what you're going to have to do with your mind. How often? Every hour? Someone said every day. I thought every hour. Maybe you think every five minutes. 
What is trust? It's this. It's when you start talking to yourself this way. For this moment, right now, what time is it? It's, it's 9.31 a.m. on the 24th of October, 2021. For this moment, I'm choosing to set my heart on the will of God and on Jesus Christ. And then 10 minutes later, while, before I'm even done preaching, you're going to have to say again, while you're still listening to the same sermon. Okay, again, my mind got distracted again. I'm going to have to turn my mind back to trusting and depending on his word. And then five minutes later, before you're even home, you're going to have to say again, my emotions, my focus, they're back on things of the world. They're back to doubting or fearing again. Trusting God is just plain exhausting. That's where you're supposed to say amen. 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 It's tiring for three reasons. Because you actually have an enemy inside of you that makes this difficult. You have this flesh that's pulling you the wrong way. It's difficult for another reason. Oh, by the way, I can give examples right from the last night of Jesus. Because in this time when Jesus is giving this teaching, just before he gives this teaching, what were the disciples fighting about? Which one of them is going to be the greatest? The same night he's told them, I'm going to die. And they don't take it into their minds. In their hearts was a problem. They start fighting who's the greatest. It is difficult to trust God because your biggest enemy is you. It's not them or her or him. It's not your husband. Whatever problems he has, actually your biggest problems are in your own heart. Number two, why is it so exhausting to trust God? Because you have another enemy. It's Satan. The same night, right before Jesus said these words, he looked to Peter and he said in Luke 22 verse 31, Satan wants you and he's trying to cast you around in every direction. But I've prayed for you so that your faith will not fail. And that same night, Satan himself entered into Judas. Do you see what was happening? Satan was in that room going disciple to disciple, trying to overthrow them. There is an evil spirit. It is not what African traditional religion teaches us that all the evil spirits are trying to take your job or cause you to wreck your new bucky. That's not it. Evil spirits are not going around trying to put you in a, in a, a, a stroke or a wheelchair. No, the evil spirits right now while I'm preaching are teaching your heart, ah, forget about this. Ah, you, you're really, what were you, what were you just watching on TV? What just dinged on your phone? What about that problem? What about the message that person sent you last night? That's what evil spirits are doing. Matthew 13, verse 19. Satan comes and tries to steal the word out of your heart. You see, the first enemy, the reason it's difficult to trust is because you're the problem. The second reason it's difficult to trust is because there's evil spirits all around and they're going into your heart saying, hey, Look at that, look at that TV show. Look at that thing. Notice this. Be distracted for this reason. Many of the distractions in our modern life are tools that Satan can use. An undistracted life is a life that will be greatly used by God. The third enemy. Can anyone guess now? Your own soul. Satan. Uh, sinners, around you. sinners all around you. How many of you have ever been pulled into sin because of people around you? These three things make it very difficult to continue to trust the Lord. They make it difficult for us to go on in faith. How might we know if we are doubting or trusting God? How could you know if you are trusting God? Let me give you three reasons or three ways. Number one, you know that you're trusting God if you have a prayerful life. In other words, doubt produces prayerlessness. You will find that you don't pray very much if you are a doubtful person. The men who firmly trust God and His Word are the men who pray. The women who really trust God are the women who give themselves to prayer. Doubt produces prayerlessness. Doubt produces fear. Like cities attract people. Which one comes first? People or cities? If you have a city, it's going to attract all the people from the village. 
If you have all the people getting together, there you're going to have a city sprout up. It's a vicious circle where it seems like fear produces doubt and doubt produces fear. I know this. If you don't trust God and his word, you will be a fearful person. 1 John 4.18, perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. Romans 8 verse 15 tells us the same thing. That when we have fear, we cannot walk in the spirit. Men who doubt God's word are commonly fearful people. And rather than taking their fears to Jesus and saying, I have this fear about my wife or my children or the money or the finances, they don't do that, which is what they should do in prayer. What we find is that rather than really praying about the thing, if we ever do pray, it turns out really to be a complaining session, which we call prayer, and then we say amen and go back to what we really love, which is being terrified all the time. Doubt produces fear. Number three, doubt produces inconsistency in the Christian life. When a man does not trust God, he will not be consistent. Inconsistency is the fruit of doubting God. Look at doubting Thomas, who was the only one of the apostles who was not together in the upper room after the resurrection. Doubting Thomas. He wasn't consistent enough to meet A man who is a doubter will not hold strong to the sword of the spirit or the trowel to build. So our Lord Jesus is hiding some things. And he's only giving answers according to his discretion because what is he trying to produce in our souls? What does he want to make? Uh Uh-oh, it's whispering. You've got to tell, everyone's got to be able to answer it in a nice, firm answer. It's one word, starts with a T. It's the point of verse 25. It's the method for prayer. If you want to be a prayer warrior, then know this. Jesus is hiding some things. He's not telling you everything. He's only going to give some truths because he wants to produce in you what, everyone? Trust. Trust. He wants to produce that in you. And if you would be a prayer warrior, if you would see answers to prayer, you must learn the discipline of trust. But there's a second method by which we can pray effectively. Not only full trust in the word, not only completely trusting God, but notice the second one. It's it's praying in a Christian way. Verse 26. Look at your Bibles at verse 26. 1626, in that day, you will ask how? Notice several things. What does he say here? In that day. Now, I want to clarify something in case you didn't catch this last week, or maybe you're new with us this week. Look back at verse 23. What does it start with in verse 23? In that day, and if you have the ESV or the King James, it will say, in that day, you will not ask anything from me. Do you see that? That word ask should be translated as question. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Why? Because in verse 16 to 22, they had been questioning Jesus. They didn't understand. They said, well, what do you mean? What does he mean? What's happening here? They were questioning. Same Greek verb. In the earlier section, they had been questioning one another and they had been questioning who? Jesus. So in verse 23, he says, well, the day is coming when I rise from the dead, you won't have any more questions. When you see me rise from the dead, then you'll know that I'm king of kings and lord of lords. So verse 23 is talking about questioning Jesus. But in verse 26, when it says in that day, look in your Bibles, in that day, you will do what? That ask is a different Greek verb, and it's meaning prayer. So in verse 23, he means question to try to find some information. In verse 26, he means pray. Make sure if your Bible has the word ask in both verbs, make sure you make a note so that you won't forget in the future. Ask in verse 23 means question to find out information. Ask in verse 26 means what? Pray. In that day, you will pray in a different way. What's the different way in verse 26? Yeah, you will pray in my name. 
What are the things that we do in Jesus' name? Let me just give you a list of six or seven things here. Matthew 5, verse 11, believers endure persecution in Jesus' name. Church discipline takes place in Jesus' name. Matthew 18, verse 20. Missionaries are sent out in Jesus' name. Mark 10, verse 29. Miracles are done in Christ's name. Mark 16, 17. And even false prophets claim to do their work in Jesus' name. You see, the whole church revolves around its actions being done in Jesus' name. But repeated more than anything else, what must be done in Jesus' name? Prayer. This asking. What does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? First of all, let me tell you three things that it doesn't mean. One, two, three. It does not mean this. Maybe you've gone to a church and they said, we're going to pray in Jesus' name. And they did one of these three things. If they do one of these three things, they're not praying in Jesus' name. When you go home, don't do this. This is not praying in Jesus' name. One, two, three. Here's three false views. Number one, it does not mean to merely say the name of Jesus. In Acts 19, there were seven men, sons of a guy named Sceva. And they came in to this man who had a demon. And I think they were very sincere. They came in and they said, in Jesus' name, we cast you out. But did the demon listen to them? No. No. I think they were probably early charismatics. They came in, they tried to put their hands and say, we cast you out. The demon looked at them and said, I know Jesus. And I know Paul. We don't know you guys. And one man conquered seven and sent them all away naked. It is not enough to merely say the name of Jesus. That's not enough. In Matthew 15 verse 8, Jesus says, This people honors me with their mouth, but their heart is what? Far from me. It is not enough to merely say the name of Jesus. Have you ever been in a church that said the name of Jesus? That's not enough to know that it's a true church. False teachers say the name of Jesus. I don't want to hear the words only. I've got to see where the heart is. Praying this way is like using witchcraft. You think you can control God. If I just say these syllables, J-E-S-U-S, if I say those syllables, then I get whatever I want. It's like a key that opens the door. No, that's not it. That's the wrong view. Number two, praying in Jesus' name does not mean Praying more loudly, as if God has a hearing aid and needs you to shout. Matthew 6, verse 5. When you pray, do not pray like the hypocrites, for they think that they will only be heard for their loud speaking. Have you ever been in a church where someone said, now it's time to pray, and we're just going to press in, press in, press in? Have you ever been in a prayer meeting where they talked about pressing in? And then all the people are told they have to stand up and they have to press in. There's videos of this on the internet, by the way. Just search in YouTube. Prayer meeting, press in. And you'll see these people, they're all standing and they're just, and they feed off one another. One person starts to shout and the other people start to raise their voices louder and louder and louder, back and forth. And they, they think they're pressing in by this shouting. That's only the flesh. Unbelievers can shout. What spiritual power does it take to raise your voice? Look at, look at every baby. Any baby can raise his voice. You think he does that by the power of the Spirit? It is not a difficult thing to raise your voice. And in fact, there's kind of a sport to it. Kind of a skill, like, like practicing with your foot until you can dribble the soccer ball. Or practicing with your hand until you can play tennis. There's a sport, a skill to it. And so these people in these churches, they even have a way to walk. I was in a prayer meeting, well, I was in a meeting that was called a prayer meeting once at a school in Mahatani. I was called there to preach, and before I preached, they wanted to show off, so they said, now we're going to have a time of prayer before the preacher comes. And you could see the, the young boys who thought that they knew how to pray, because they announced, now it's time to pray. And two or three of these young boys came to the, they, they all stood up and began speaking, and as they began speaking, they slowly, as they're speaking, they're walking and taking their steps back and forth. And slowly these boys 
migrated to the front of the class, just acting as if they're just, you know, their eyes are supposedly closed. But interestingly, the loudest boys kept moving to the front. They get to the front of the class where they have a little more space in front of the seats. And then they start walking back and forth, bouncing as they walk, bouncing back and forth, shouting out until they're shouting. Three or four of them, and I'm pushed into a corner. I don't even want to be communicate that I'm in any way supporting this as if God is pleased or Jehovah is hearing them. And they're walking back and forth, shouting and bouncing and and their voices even have a kind of bounce and lilt to it, like a car whose shocks are bad driving on these roads. Boom, 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 boom. And they're going on. That's not filled with the Spirit. That is not what Jude is talking about when he says, praying in the Holy Ghost. They, oh yeah, we're praying in the spirit. No, you're not. God's angry with you. Jesus even said in Matthew 6 verse 5, do not pray like the unbelievers. They think they will be heard because they talk loudly. Two verses later, he says, don't repeat. They think they will be heard because they repeat. And if you listen to what they're saying, what do they say every time? Oh, God of mercy, God of strength, we're asking for your blessing. God of mercy, God of strength, we're calling on you now. God of mercy, God of strength, we're asking you to be with us. What are they asking? Nothing. They're repeating nothings that they could have learned when they were four years old, bouncing and bouncing like they probably saw on TV, hoping that the pretty girls are peeking and watching them. That's all they're doing. This is the flesh, not the spirit. This is not praying in Jesus' name. This is a mark of heathenism, paganism, and non-Christian religion. The third wrong way to pray. Praying in Jesus' name does not mean praying vague general words like God bless us in Jesus' name. God be with us. Oh, come down to us. Oh, send us what we need. What are you saying? Vague, unclear requests. This kind of praying is just playing at religion. Like again, Jesus mentions in Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8. How would they ever know if God had answered their prayer? It's interesting that when you read the prayers in the Bible, they are very specific. We're going to see this when we see John 17. I told you, John 17 is the example when Jesus is praying. He showed... He's teaching us now, but in John 17, he's going to do what? He's going to show us. He's actually going to pray, and we are going to be able to stand at the corner and very silently be as silent as possible because we'll get to watch the Son and the Father dialogue with each other. If you ever want to learn to pray, study John 17, and we'll see what prayer is in John 17. But what we're going to see is there's three requests, and they are very specific. He prays for specific people. We're going to see that in John 17. Watch the prayers of the Apostle Paul as you read Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Watch the prayers of the Apostle Paul. When he prays, he prays for specific things. I gave out that list last week, and anyone who wants it, I've got some extra papers right here. 50 biblical prayer requests. If you need one of these, here's here's a list of prayer requests straight from the Bible. How many churches pray this way? Most of them don't because they don't read their Bibles or perhaps they aren't. They aren't familiar with these requests. Try, I made this list and mentioned this last week. There's 50 on this list, uh, 49, but number two should be two. So that makes 50. Pray one of these per week for seven days. When you go to prayer, these are verses from the Bible where people in the Bible were praying or where God himself told us, pray this way. What you're going to find when you begin to pray this way is you're praying very specific things. And then number two, you're praying very spiritual things. You can pray every one of these requests in the name of Jesus and you don't need to shout. I don't mind if you shout, but maybe you should do that privately. But if you do shout, don't think to yourself, my shouting is causing God to answer me. God answers when we pray in his son's name. Not when we express that we're, I'm really an alpha male. So let me show, let me show how strong I am. He's not impressed with that at all. He's impressed with prayers that are biblical. Prayers that are trusting. Prayers that are done in a Christian way. So what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name 
Very quickly as we're closing. Praying in Jesus' name means that there is a living, vital union between Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the trunk of the tree, and you as a branch. It means you are not a branch broken off of one tree and tied on with a rope or a wire or a plastic onto the real tree. What's going to happen if I break a branch off that tree and walk over to this tree and tie it on with a rope? What's going to happen in a week? What's going to happen to the leaves in 10 days? They're going to dry and fall to the ground. What's going to happen in two years? It's completely dry. Or maybe it's tied on there very strong. But there's no living union. You pray in Jesus' name when you are united to Christ by faith. That's the the blessing called union with Christ. And if you don't have union with Christ, then you don't understand what Jesus taught us in John 15. Abiding in the vine so you can bear much fruit. Pulling the, the... the, the water from well under the soil and that water comes through Christ right up the, the trunk of the tree and into every branch that is connected to him. Are you connected to him? To pray in Jesus' name means you are connected to him. Number two, to pray in Jesus' name means, remember this, one word, if you think, what does it mean? The one word, here it is. Asking with his authority. The word authority is the one word. This can only be done when you pray for things that are biblical. You cannot ask in God's authority or in Christ's authority for things he did not say in his word. John Bunyan, the man who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, was a wicked and godless man. In his early 20s, he found a girl and married her. She was a true Christian, which means she shouldn't have married him. But she did marry him. And she brought two books into their marriage, the Bible and another book. And John Bunyan began to read that other book and think, maybe I need to be a Christian. And his soul was terrified that he was lost. So eventually he becomes a Christian and he writes a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. It's a short book. And in that short book, he explains how he became a Christian. Listen to the story. Bunyan says, for years I was terrified that I was lost. One of the difficulties I had came to prayer. I would go to God and say, please save me. But then I would wonder, did he answer me? Did he answer me or not? I don't know. How can I know? So Bunyan always wondered, has that you? Have any of you ever prayed to be saved, but then still wondered, am I truly converted? Well, Bunyan wondered that too. You're in good company. One of the best Christians who's ever lived. He did that for years. And then he still wondered, am I truly converted? This is what changed for him. When he was walking one day, he saw a puddle of water on the path. And he asked himself, Jesus said, whatever I ask, I'll get if I pray in his name. So what if I pray in Jesus' name that the water will dry up from the mud puddle right in front of me? He thought to himself, I think I'm going to try it. I think I'm going to say right now, in the name of Jesus, dry up. But then something stopped him. And he thought, wait a minute. On what authority do I say dry up? So then he thought, well, I'm saying in the name of Jesus. Then I said, wait a minute. That's just me saying words. Where did Jesus ever promise me that he would dry up the water in the puddle if I say it? And then it hit him. Jesus never promised that if I say water be dried up in Jesus' name, the water will be dried up. Therefore, it must mean something else. So he went back to his Bible and he started looking for the things that Jesus told him to ask for. That's on that paper I just gave you. And Bunyan was converted when he realized whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh, there, if I just call out on his name, he'll hear me. Oh, And many other requests like that. You can be 100% sure when you pray a prayer that God says to pray, he'll give you that one. I have in my study a book, which is a really bad book. It's in my section of really bad theology. You need one of those sections if you get a good library. You need a section called really bad theology so that when you're preaching, you can say, here's a really bad way to do it. One of those books is 100 Prayers to Pray. Every prayer is a bad prayer because not one of the prayers comes from the Bible. They're all foolish and silly prayers like, 
I pray that God would throw all the spiritual gangsters in my life. Where does God tell you to pray against the spiritual gangsters? Another one is, I pray that all the spiritual marriages in my life that happened while I was sleeping would be broken. Where does the Bible ever tell you to pray that God would break spiritual marriages in your life that happened while you were sleeping? This is actually African traditional religion. This is witchcraft. It has nothing to do with the Bible. The Bible does not tell you to pray that way. What happened is people who had influence from African religion and never really left it. They grabbed and said, well, I've got my African religion. Let me grab the white man's religion too and try to stir them up in a big salad. And what comes is coffee with jick instead of milk. And it's going to kill you. No, don't pray that way. Throw that one away. Be like John Bunyan and look at the mud puddle and say, wait a minute. Where did Jesus ever say I can pray for that mud puddle to be dried up? But there's 50 things at least Jesus said pray for this. Go pray for those things and find more. There's probably more in the Bible. Go find more things and make the list 100 and pray for them. Pray for one a week for a year. You come back in 2022 and see if you're not the man in Psalm 1 verse 2 who's like a tree planted by the rivers of water. His leaf will not wither and whatever he does will prosper. Why? Because you're praying and the Son of God promised, I'll give you and the Father will give you and you'll be filled with joy. May God teach us how to pray. Father, come and help us. Meet our needs. There are men and women here who are hurting. Please cut them and convict them for their prayerlessness and their doubt and their foolish and unbiblical prayers and grant that today we would pray in the name of Jesus with his authority and through the words that he has given us to pray. May we pray united to him and cause us to confess our sins for not coming and praying the way you've taught us. In Jesus' name, amen.